Somebody must know something out there. More than one person will know who it was. It's somebody we know, for sure. I reckon she knew her killer. I really do, eh? This is the fourth and final episode of Annette, a four-part podcast exploring the mysterious disappearance and death of 19-year-old girl Annette Deverell in the small coastal Australian town of Mandra in 1980. As it stands in 2019, Annette's mother is no closer to getting the answer she craves and finally finding out what happened on that fateful night 39 years ago. In the first three episodes, we explored the circumstances surrounding Annette's disappearance from outside a post office in Mandra, speaking with her family, friends and investigators, piecing the puzzle together bit by bit. In the last episode, we poured over the police investigation into Annette's disappearance in 1980 and their efforts to determine what caused her death after her remains were found in 1982. Due to a lack of police resources at the time, Detective Barry Rollinson was charged with finding out what happened to Annette, but he was based 70 kilometres away from Mandra in Midland. Retired Detective Jeff Beeman spoke of the difficulties he faced reviewing the investigation in 1999, including the lack of support he says he received from his superiors and the mammoth workload that inhibited his efforts to solve the case. We spoke with Annette's friends, who told us their recollections of the night she went missing. Some were interviewed by police, while others were surprised at a lack of questioning from the authorities. And we revealed that a bloodstained towel discovered in bushland near Annette's home is now sitting in police storage. It's a crucial piece of evidence that has the potential to be tested for a killer's DNA, alongside a gun and bag. In this episode, Annette's younger brother Michael Deverell, who goes by Digger, shares fond memories of his protective older sister. Margaret Dodd, another local mother whose daughter disappeared and was later found to have been murdered, shares her thoughts on Annette Deverell's case. We speak with the head of the WA Police Cold Case Squad, Tony Rosenberg, who says he's willing to throw resources at the case if relevant information is provided to detectives. But this episode will start with interesting information that has come to light since this podcast series began about the panel van in which Annette was a passenger on the night she disappeared. A warning, this episode contains references to rape and sexual violence. Since the first episode of this podcast launched four weeks ago, we've received an overwhelming response from the manager community and listeners across Australia. We've received emails and calls from people with information and suspicions they've never passed on, like one woman who said she was grabbed by a group of men who tried to pull her into a car on the main street of Mandra one year before Annette disappeared. She's since reported this to Mandra Police. Another message we received was particularly startling. It may change the direction of the police investigation, so we called back right away. Hello. Hey, is that Mark? It is. Hello, it's Carla from the Mandra Mail. How are you going? <laughs> I didn't see it take you long. 
After listening to the first episode of the podcast, Mark Butt contacted us to say it was his panel van that Annette was in on the night she disappeared. Jeff Beeman received the information in 1999, suggesting Annette was seen waving from the back of a mysterious dark-coloured panel van with chrome wheels, but he was unable to determine who'd been driving it. Yeah, yeah, we picked her up. It was my van. Really? Okay, so tell me, what happened? Well, we just picked her up on the corner, me and me mate, Graham. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was no secret that it was me and Graham who last saw her. What can you remember from that Well, night? we were doing bog laps because that's what you did. You just drove around and around in circles because, as you know, it was a one-way. You always tried to do as many as you can, 100, you know, 150, whatever laps. Mark says he was in his car with his friend Graham Jose, who we will hear from later in the episode. Mark says his memory is hazy after 39 years. Um, yeah, and we were just driving around. We saw Annette. She was on her own at the corner shop. Because we saw her once, and then when we went around again, she was still there. And then you stopped and picked her up. And, yeah. yeah. I don't know whether she waved us down, or we just pulled up to say g'day, or whatever. She was looking for a friend of hers that she'd been out with at the boathouse to take us around the block and see if we can see her. So she jumped in the back of the van. It was a grey uh, EH powerman. Uh, it had um, shiny mag wheels, which I just thought was just so cool. We drove her around. I don't know whether it was once we drove around or a couple of times. With her head out the back, looking for her friend. And I, I can't remember who she waved at. I, that, that would be Annette. If she saw someone, she would have yelled out the back of the van. You know, as you do, or as you did. And then she said um, she wanted to go back to the boat house, so we dropped her off at the corner of the post office. Or she said she wanted to make a phone call. I can't remember. Because uh, the post office had the only phone other than uh, the actual Brighton. Yeah. And we dropped her off there. And that was it. That's the last we saw of her. She was never seen again. Mark says he can't remember which friend Annette was looking for. He thinks she'd had a fight with someone, but she wasn't too phased by the argument. I think she said she had an argument or something. She'd been to the Brighton. Do you remember who she'd had an argument with? Or one of her friends. Girlfriends. She was fine, like she wasn't in stress or nothing. It was just normal, Annette. You know, in those days, to drop her off on the corner by herself, you never thought anything of it. You know, you just walked around the town. Everyone did, without any fear or nothing. Because that's just how Mandra was. Mark and Graham were a year younger than Annette, but knew her well. Mark says Annette was adored by all the boys. Everyone wanted to go out with Annette. Because she was just, um... You just fell in love with her. I mean, I was in love with her. Everyone was in love with her. You wanted to be, you wanted to be seen with Annette. <laughs> she was just gorgeous. She was just bubbly. She was just, she was just like that all the time. You just, I mean, you know, if she just walked in the room, well, it was just, oh, you know, there's Annette. You know, the girls hated her. You know, all the boys loved her. You know, no one likes the popular girl, do they? But having said that, they all wanted to be a friend. Mark says he told police after Annette's disappearance that he'd given her a lift. We might have been suspects or something because you'd come around a couple of times to the house. It was pissing me mother off. I just get asking us uh, what had happened. In 1982, when her remains were found, were you interviewed again? No, I don't think so. No, no. Graham Joseph's recollection is similar to Mark's. 
we might have been coming from somewhere or whatever and just do a couple of laps to see if there was anyone in town, hook up with them, do whatever they're doing. Sometimes you would even just go to the top of the car park at Coles and, you know, there'd be guys up there and you'd sit and have a drink and a chat and go home from there or whatever. And um, what was your involvement with the police back then? They just said, has anyone seen her on this particular night? You know, has anyone seen Annette? We just went in and said, yeah, we saw her this night at this time, and that was it. And then they said, yep, all right, no worries. I never heard from them again after that, because she was only missing at that time. Yeah, so we never heard anything. And then years later on the news, I hear that they found a skeleton, and once they even found a, the remains, I didn't get any calls from the police or anything about it, which was, I thought, you know, a bit odd. Did they even have an investigation? Retired detective Jeff Beeman says the girl who reported seeing Annette waving from the back of a panel van reported it to police in 1980. As we heard in episode 3, Jeff looked in the old police occurrence books in 1999 to see if officers had followed up on the report, but the books from the weeks after Annette's disappearance had been destroyed. Old books, people go, we don't need them anymore, and they'd send them off somewhere and they'd just burn them. There was no need to keep them. We now know that Mark and Graham dropped Annette near the post office, but we have no clue as to what happened to Annette after this and who was the friend she was trying to find. The state of Western Australia has a cold case homicide squad based in Perth, a large team of detectives working to crack unsolved murders and long-term missing persons cases dating back decades, just like Annette's. Maybe Annette Deverell's case will be one of the next to be reviewed, We know her mother, Margaret Carver, hopes it will be. A WA police spokesperson told us the case has been reviewed on a number of occasions since 1980 as part of normal investigative practices. Because Annette's death is still classified as an ongoing criminal investigation, the Annette podcast was not given access to the police files, including statements and interviews. But Tony Rosenberg, head of the WA police cold case squad, agreed to sit down with me. I suppose from when this case occurred in 1980 to where we are now, they are worlds apart. We've gone from not having DNA but just blood typing up to processes I could not even describe, completely different world in forensic sciences. Senior Sergeant Rosenberg says cold case detectives are up against lost time trying to crack cold cases like Annette's, where witnesses are in their late 50s, early 60s, or may have passed away already. But he says technology has come a long way since the 80s. There's been uh, a lot of changes in forensic methodology and things like that, so DNA plays a big part. And so a lot of these older matters, when the incidents occur, the exhibits may not have been dealt with in the way they would be dealt with now. So with evidence from back then, could that be tested now? I won't talk about this one specifically, Mm -hmm. but all exhibits will undergo some kind of examination and if the opportunity is there to use DNA or whatever method is the best method to suit the particular exhibit, then it will be looked at. Senior Sergeant Rosenberg couldn't explain why Annette's case hasn't been solved. There's unsolved matters for a number of reasons. I couldn't speculate on that. I I don't know. I don't know. That's a difficult question. Do you think it has anything to do with resourcing? The resourcing that police had back then? No. 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 Okay. But he says there's still hope and that police aren't giving up. They won't ask for a coronial inquest until they've exhausted all options. 
A coronial inquest is a public hearing held by the state coroner to examine the circumstances surrounding the cause of someone's death. In some cases, an inquest provides family members with much-needed answers. Until it's determined to be unresolved from our point of view, we wouldn't send it to the coroner while there's investigative actions and work to be done. So it's unlikely to be sent there until we've satisfied there's nothing more we can do. People will have information that they're sitting on for whatever reason they may not have felt comfortable to provide that back in the day. You know, somebody who might have been a teenager back then, their whole life would have changed. You know, people have moved on. They can contact Crime Stoppers and we will assess every single piece of information that comes through to us. We just want to give the family some peace of mind and some answers to know what happened to Annette. Margaret Carver, Annette's mother, pleaded ahead of the first episode of this podcast for the state government to offer a reward for information on her daughter's case. I'd like to see somebody charged for her murder. In certain cases, police apply to the state government for a reward to be issued in a bid to generate information. It could be extremely valuable in a case like Annette's, in a small town where there may be more than one person who knows something. Allegiances can change, and a $250,000 reward, similar to the ones offered in other cases, could tempt someone to provide crucial evidence to police. We asked WA Police why a reward had never been advertised for information on Annette Deverell's case. A spokesperson provided a written response which said all rewards were based on the needs of an investigation which was generally negotiated between WO Police and the State Government. At this point in time, Cold Case Homicide Squad has not made a submission to the Government to seek a reward. The matter will be considered, along with other Cold Case matters currently held by the Cold Case Homicide Squad, in due course. Mandra MP David Templeman says he's spoken with the police minister and asked her to discuss a reward with police. With regard to the reward request, I've spoken to the minister for police and I've asked that consideration of a reward be discussed with the police as a matter of urgency and the minister is awaiting advice from police on this request. But ultimately, I support any action that is focused on providing Annette's family with the answers and can only imagine that family's ongoing grief. My thoughts and the thoughts of our whole community are with Ms Deverell's family and friends. And if anyone knows anything, I strongly urge them to contact our police. WA Police Minister Michelle Roberts says she'll speak with WA Police about the prospect of issuing a reward for information. My thoughts are with the family and friends of Ms Deverell. I urge anyone who knows what happened to Annette to come forward. Police continue to review cold cases and I'll ask police for advice as to whether they believe a reward could assist. Annette's younger brother Digger says the loss of his sister when he was still in high school is something he struggles with to this day. Digger looked up to Annette and says she fiercely protected him and her other brothers, Malcolm and Jason. She was me, yeah. We used to get along well and fight each other and, you know, play fight and all that sort of stuff, you know. Hanging out together, you know what I mean? We, we used to go shooting and all that sort of stuff and that was good, put it that way. Had someone to back you up. She'd look after us. She, she always protected us, you know what I mean? It was good. When Annette didn't come home after going into town to buy cigarettes on September 13, 1980, Digger says he went looking for her. I knew straight away there was something wrong. That night she went missing. We actually went looking for her everywhere, you know, everyone's house and that we sort of know. We ended up finding the people we wanted to find after the town. They were at a pickup. Mum had seen her, you know what I mean? All her friends and that. 
good. It would have been three or four of us looking. Someone was driving. I wasn't old enough to drive, you know what I mean? The next day, like, I knew there was something wrong. Walked down the street on your own, was it a girl or a bloke or whatever, you know? Or ten years old, it wouldn't matter them days. That's why it's strange her going. Digger says his life was never the same after that night. I knew she wasn't coming back, put it that way. Because I knew she wouldn't run away or anything like that. I knew something had happened different. Mm. I think everyone knew that. Yeah, it was just shock and that's all I know. But, yeah. I know Mum was... Well, obviously everyone's upset and that. And just trying to think, you know, who's done something, obviously. Well, I was waiting for the day to, to, you know, someone to find her or something. And eventually I got that and that was the worst day of my life. No, I could be better sleeping than then. I mean, then waking up and saying that they found her. Mm. I, just laid in, I just laid in bed for about eight hours, I think, just thinking. Well, actually, I didn't even cry, but because I knew that she'd gone, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I already knew it happened, but I just lay there and thought. I didn't know what I thought of, but, yeah. Digger says he wasn't interviewed by police after Anna disappeared, but he was spoken to by officers after her remains were found in bushland, about 30 minutes' drive from where she was last seen. He showed detectives where locals went shooting, which was near Scarp Road. Annette's remains were found near a bush track off the same road. I was at Renee's house, my girlfriend on my wife's house now. We were together back then years ago. Detectives come round to her house and pick me up. I took them up in the hills and that. Yeah. Show them where we used to go shooting and all that sort of stuff. So we used to shoot all that area up there. Obviously, there was older people, like all her older friends and that, you know, not none of my friends. Took a few of my friends up there, but yeah, with them, the old friends and that. Well, I took them and that's where she was found up that way. You know, you just grab someone off the street and go there if you don't know the area. You know the freaking area. Not many people know the spot. That was about it, what they done with me. Digger struggles to comprehend certain aspects of the case. The thing I don't get is why did they leave that gun there? Why would you do that? If I, if I killed somebody, I wouldn't leave the freaking gun there. That trying to put you off or something, you know what I mean? It's weird. She get shot before she got in someone's car. They wouldn't get her in the freaking car. Mm-hmm. And she she's not stupid. Someone pulled up and got out, she'd freaking bolt for her life. Digger echoes his mother Margaret's sentiments and says a reward should be offered. Someone knows something, he says. Maybe they're protecting a friend. The main reason why there should be a reward is because it's someone that knows all of us. I truly believe that, you know what I mean? And, yeah, like everyone else gets a reward. Why don't, why don't our family get a reward, you know what I mean? And it will make them talk. A bit of money is going to make them talk. And honestly, I think a reward's the only way that it's going to happen. Money changes everyone. And if you don't get a reward, the case will never be solved, I don't It needs to be solved before my mum dies, you know what I mean? Yeah. She don't want to go to the grave without not knowing. He hopes a renewed effort by police can provide the answers his family craves. Well, they didn't do a good job in the beginning. They'll do a lot better job now. In a separate case involving a West Australian teenager who disappeared, Margaret Dodd successfully lobbied for a $250,000 award to be offered for information about her 17-year-old daughter Hayley. Hayley vanished in July 1999 from Badgingara, a small town in WA's Wheatbelt. In January 2018, Francis John Walk was convicted of her abduction and murder. 
Miss Dodd asked for an apology from WA Police in July because she believes the case wasn't investigated properly. When police were preparing for the case to be heard in the coroner's court, Haley's earring was found lodged in the fabric of the ute Walk had been driving that day. This crucial piece of evidence led to Walk's conviction more than 18 years after Haley disappeared. Miss Dodd was able to secure the offer of a reward three years after Haley's disappearance. She's been vocal about the case, fighting every step of the way for a reward and a coronial inquest. It's just been a constant, constant fight. Mm. I'm surprised it hasn't put me, me in my grave sooner. We trusted the police. We expected them to guide us along the way, but that didn't happen. They said, don't talk to the media. Big mistake. The publicity is what you needed to get information in. Yet they, they seem to want to keep it all okay. But the truth of the matter was, the resources were taken up on the Clermont case. And which, you know, rightfully so. It's a serial killing. Nobody wants a serial killer running around. But who was to say that Haley wasn't part of that serial killer unless it, you know, it's been investigated? Or any, anybody else's case like that? Other cases were put on the back burner. They've got a budget. It's not a never-ending budget. You know, they've got more resources in the city. Uh, they're having to send officers from there to a country outpost. So you're not going to have the same resources in a country area. You know, sadly, but, you know, that that's true. I said, well, I want the reward. Raising to what other people are being offered, 250000 I thought that was fair. I don't think one life's, you know, worth any more than anyone else. And it would create some more publicity and keep it out there. And actually, and that's all I've done all these years, kept the publicity up and kept it out there so they can't sit Haley's case on his shelf and forget about it. The detectives that, that brought the case to trial, even they said if it wasn't for my doggedness, it would never ever have been solved. Miss Dodd has known Annette's mother, Margaret, for more than 20 years. Miss Dodd says she has spoken with Margaret about Annette's case and thinks it needed a more thorough investigation after learning Annette's bag was found a month after her remains were found off the same bush track. You know, two years out there, there's been a bushfire, you've got winter, you've got summer, and yet the lipstick hadn't melted. It was like it was straight out the shop. You know, there's a, there's a lot of strange things about that case. Did the person go and dump the bag off later, thinking, oh, I better get rid of this? In fact, quite honestly, if I was a police officer, I'd be intrigued by that case. I'd be wanting to look into it. So surely it's time, you know, the police think, we are going to actively investigate this case. We're not going to say, yes, it's still open, because we know all cases are open until they're closed. Let's, you know, cl clean it off the books. Let's have this solved. But uh, Annette's poem, she she'd love answers. And I think that the police service owe them to do the best that they could possibly do. I really think that they owe that to them. Miss Dodd believes a coronial inquest could help Annette's family get answers without hindering the current police investigation. Really, in a lot of cases like ours, I think it's important they actually do have an inquest into it. They can give instructions that it needs further investigation and say, well, you haven't done such a good job. Why haven't you done this? So where do we go from here? Police say they want information and locals say there are no shortage of suspects. In the course of researching and producing this podcast, names were mentioned and information was pieced together on who could have been responsible or involved in Annette's death. Annette's friends and people I've spoken with have named 10 different men they believe could have been involved. Legally, we can't name any of the people Annette's friends suspect know what happened to her. 
In Australia, journalists are bound by strict defamation laws. If there was a coronial inquest or someone had been charged following Annette's death, we'd be able to share more with you. We hope for Annette's family there is the potential for a coronial inquest in the future. Annette's friend Barbara Kalisha suspects a man who's since died. He said something to her in a pub one night that stayed with her. A nutcase. A very violent person. I used to look at think, you know, if, if he said something to Annette and she said it at some other place, he'd turn around. Was he out that night? Oh, I couldn't tell you. He's out every night. He was a drunk. I've done it once, I can do it again. That's what he said to me there. And that's when I thought, if you've done it once, is it Annette you're talking about? I think we had been talking about Annette, and I think the drunker he got, that's when he turned around and said, I've done it once, I can do it again. I went, okay. I never left him because he's mouth of mighty. Annette's friend Debbie Thompson had a strange conversation with a man she thinks could have been involved. I got seen a little bit more of his walk, so I, well, I always thought it was him. One night I got him talking about it. One stage, he said, he was sick as a dream when he was having that. And he told me that Annette's face was right there and her mouth was moving, but I couldn't hear what she was saying. And I just thought that was a very strange way to explain a dream by bringing his hands up like that. In like a choking position. Mm. And I just thought it was really, really weird. Annette's friend Barbara Kalisha has doubts about the same man. Came up to me one night drunk at the Ravenswood Hotel. Just about Annette, wonder who did it, Barb. And he's a drunk too now. So does Mark Butt. He was another one that was possessed with Annette. He, he was another one that was bandied around, chronic, drunk, violent, very aggressive. He'd just snap mm. and just turn to this major violent person. And if you saw him coming to the party, it'd be like, oh, crap, how's this going to go? You tried not inviting him, that's for sure. And Graham Jose. He was a bit strange. He, he would be one on my list, I'm afraid. Sorry mm. about that. But yeah, because yeah, he was heavy into the alcohol and whatever else he was into, I, don't, I couldn't tell you. But yeah, he was, when he was drunk, yeah, he was a bit of a loose cannon. Unpredictable is what I would say. Annette's friend Trevor Hewitt remembers hearing a different person talking about her death at a party, which raised suspicions. And he said it wasn't meant to happen like that. I said, what do you mean? And he's either way in it went, it wasn't meant to happen like that. Sort of, why would you say that? Annette's friend Trevor Hewitt says one of these men was acting suspiciously in the lead up to Annette's murder and changed his lifestyle afterwards. And he got really out of place and said a lot of things, you know, he hated women, he got really drunk, he had a bad drinking problem at the time. And, you know, from the day she sort of disappeared, you could actually see his life change. Different person. He just wasn't a drinker anymore, just kept his shit right. Yeah, he'd be the only one that I think really was in it that was going, was saying threatening things about women. And I don't think that was a secret. He was saying it in front of everyone. You know, they all deserve bloody what they get and stuff like that. So if it is... He needs to pay for it. Just changing his life doesn't work. Mark Butt says he heard the same man muttering things he suspected were about Annette when he was drunk. Because he was seeing a friend of mine at the time and he was a heavy, 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 heavy drinker. I went to visit my girlfriend, uh, as in just girlfriend, 
and uh, he was passed out in the driveway. He was just paralytic, just moaning and saying, I didn't mean to, and blah, blah, blah. Everyone thinks I did it. He was just rambling. I told all this to the police. I was adamant that he killed her because of what I heard him say. And he's drunk and stupid. You know, so it might have been an accident. I don't think it was a deliberate, you know, shit, I'm going to go and kill Annette. You know, I'd say, um, if anything, it, it was an accident. But Annette's brother Digger doesn't think this person was involved. We loved her. We freaking, because he wanted her, you know what I mean? He wouldn't have done anything to get her, but he wouldn't freaking try and rape her or kill her. Whoever done it's tried to rape her, put it that way, or had raped her. You know, you don't do that for nothing, you know what I mean? He'd buy her anything. Like, he used to give her anything, buy her things, and mm. that's why I thought, no, he didn't do it. After investigating the murder, retired detective Jeff Beeman held suspicions about one man. And there's a, there's a name banded around, he, he, he's still around town, this bloke, so it's quite like possible, this bloke. And this could be, like I say, I reckon that's solvable. And the information I had point, was pointing to one person in particular. Yeah. It was a very violent person that uh, had had history of assaulting young, young women. A witness told me that he wanted to have something with Annette and she wouldn't have a bar of him, and he was pretty aggro about it. At one stage, he, he attacked a car she was in, you know, smashed something on the windscreen and all that sort of stuff. That's, just, that's what I was told. So that's where the person that I suspected, I, I provided that to the homicide squad to have a look at. But I never got to speak to him because I didn't have really enough to go any further, you know. Police need the public's help. Can you provide the missing jigsaw piece, the piece of information that could crack the case and finally give Annette's family a resolution? Retired Detective Jeff Beeman says there's still a chance this cold case could be solved, even after all these years. Possibly he could be just walking around, you know, yeah, living a normal life. And whoever, you know, these people, you know, you don't know, I don't know uh, who he's with, you know. But these people probably got families now and got children of their own and, and uh, they don't want to know about it. And probably concerned to think, I've, I've known this and I've said nothing, I'll be in trouble. They're not going to be in big trouble, you know. So even if they were in the car, and this bloke, somebody goes psycho and goes over the top, you know, that that might be they'd be a good party to this. I'm going to have a problem, you know. And the reality is, if they came forward and provided the the, the evidence, they would probably get away with a very minimal if they were minor players. History shows that that the DPP and the courts would look favourable if they were to provide the, the evidence. Annette's mother Margaret says she thinks about her daughter every day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she was my best friend. <laughs> yeah, it's sad, but I still hear her talking. I'll be sitting here and all of a sudden I'll hear Mum and look around, but it's just all in my mind, I suppose. It must be. <laughs> yeah. Margaret wants the case to be solved, finally, to give her and her family closure. Whether they don't want to dob their... They might be one of their mates or something and they just don't want to say anything about it or get involved, who knows, eh? But that's not the point. We've got to live with this for the rest of our life and if anyone knew anything, I'd be grateful they come forward and said something. And most of them still live in Mandurah, all the, all the girls and young guys around her age, mm-hmm. they're still all here. Mm-hmm. Not many of them moved away. I don't want to go to my grave not knowing that it was never ever solved. Annette's family needs closure. Annette's friends and the Mandra community want justice. It's time Margaret gets the answers she deserves. 
Thank you for listening to the Annette Cold Case Unlocked four-part series. Thanks to all the people who have trusted me over the past 12 months and who have taken the time to speak with me on and off record for this podcast. Jeff Beeman's insight into the police investigation has been invaluable. And a special thank you to Annette's mother, Margaret, and her family for reliving a painful experience and for being so open about their heartbreak. We hope this series will spark someone's memory or encourage witnesses with crucial information to finally come forward about what really happened that Saturday night in Mandra. If you have any information that could help police solve this case, contact Crime Stoppers on 1800 333 000. You can contact me, Carla Hildebrandt, at annettpodcast at gmail.com.